Welcome to episode 238 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Martin Hislop. Two months ago, I wrote a column titled Canadians Oblivious to China's Lead in Clean Energy Arms Race. In it, I made a point I'm rather fond of, which is that China in 2023 is in roughly the same spot the United States was after World War II, when the U.S. emerged as the world's great industrial power, which then led to geopolitical power. China is now driving the global energy transition, while North America, Europe, South Korea, Japan scramble to catch up. When a Wood McKenzie press release about five low-carbon trends, tech trends worth tracking, showed up in my inbox, I was very keen to chat with one of its authors. This morning, I'll be joined by Dr. Stephen, uh, Stephen Nell, Vice President of Power and Renewables at Wood McKenzie. So welcome to uh, Energy Talk, Steve. Markham, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of the things I'm surprised at, and I shouldn't be, is how often I'm interviewing Canadians like yourself, good Waterloo boy from Ontario, um, who have risen to um, positions like, you know, in, within consulting firms and universities and so on. And um, I don't know if the if the press office at their organization is is ranging it because they know I'm Canadian. I have no idea, but um, it's good. It's always fun to to meet Canadians who are succeeding in other parts of the world. Well, Markham, thank you. It's um, uh, I like to think that despite it being more than 30 years since I uh, left the, the fair shores of, of southern Ontario for the uh, for the old world, that the the foundational understanding around the importance of sustainability uh, on the one hand, which was shaped by my time in northern Ontario on many a lake, but also time working um, in the natural resource sector from a, a federal governmental perspective and seeking to reconcile some of the, uh, at times, understood as competing agendas between um, uh, the Department for Environment and Climate Change as well as Natural Resources Canada is a, a balancing act and in a way, um, two sides of, uh, of a coin that has really defined my in, entire professional career. So those ideas of Environmental stewardship, as well as the importance of resource development, is probably something that uh, imbues many a, an expat Canadian perspective. I don't doubt. I don't doubt it. We are the hewers of wood and drawers of water, as uh, as is often said. And no surprise that it would uh, influence your thinking. Um, I, before we get into the the five trends that we want to talk about, I want to run a little scenario past you. That so, like 2016, 2017, I was. You know, I was writing about and reporting on the energy transition, and the experts that I was interviewing were saying, you know, we're we're thinking inflection points and things like EVs, maybe early to mid 2030s, that sort of thing. And in 2017, 2018, I started. It was like a, you could feel the, the ground shifting. It was like, is is the energy transition speeding up? Are we noticing, you know, changes in data, changes in attitude? Maybe you know the me different media coverage. All of that, and some of my the experts I talked to would say, "Yeah, you know, that really is that's right." And some would say, "No, that, that not it's not clear yet." Well, by not 2019, it was clear, and then 2020 was kind of the threshold. It was when, you know, the major clean energy technologies like wind, solar, batteries, EVs, heat pumps. Well, maybe not heat pumps, but certainly the other four clearly passed their inflection point. Yeah, and they were they were. And and now and then, of course, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine was another sort of boost to that. 
And is that a fair way of, of looking at this, at the energy transition in recent years? Uh, yes, most definitely. I would, um, I would highlight a couple different regulatory, technological, as well as market trends to substantiate the claim. So first, from a policy standpoint, 2019 is when you began to see the net zero narratives emerge from more of a peripheral. And, you know, the Paris Agreement of 2015 called for mid-century planning in a way which the response to climate change had never really brought forth from sovereigns before. So we needed to look much longer term. And the science of climate change substantiated a, a push to net zero that major economies the UK and Japan in May of 2019 really got the ball rolling. And by the end of 2019, I think you saw much more of a focus in the public sector on setting the tone for what then became a, a broader engagement around net zero that's become defined by many, many corporates, many financiers. So really that's, that's safe to say that, you know, the policy narrative in climate change shifted towards a much more aggressive pitch and tenor in, in 2019. And, the, I speak to you from the United Kingdom where I've made my professional career and home. And, and, you know, really, we had this narrative here in the UK about build back better. And, you know, ultimately, the massive dislocation that COVID then wrought in 2020 and 2021 to many of our markets prompted public sector interventions in infrastructure and in the energy sector, which brought a degree of acceleration in project activity, commissioning public works, new infrastructure spend, underwriting investments, and so on and so forth. So I think that that is a really great milestone and the market has priced that in, um, you know, to varying degrees of success. I think we've also had to deal with markets overheating and some of the lower cost technologies that had been boosted up that really reached, you could argue that inflection point of market readiness almost before 2019, really contributing to uh, the need to rethink the way we conceive of profitability in the renewable sector. We overheated, our supply chains got disrupted. That happened during COVID. Then Russia, as you say, kind of aug augmented things to a certain extent, rewiring the way we move goods around the world. And um, I think the dust is still settling. So that's it's one of those points that um, uh, it's notable. We look back and wonder, how did we get here? And there's a lot of really long-term history, but also these marked periods of acceleration. And you, you've done a good job to nail one of them there. I, I want to talk about Russia invading Ukraine for a moment, because I think the oil-producing countries have misread the significance of that. The, the lesson around energy insecurity that it created was not that we need new sources of hydrocarbons long-term. It was that we need new sources of hydrocarbons short term and now we're going to electrify by adopting you know whether it's a renewables or nuclear or whatever it is but we're going to electrify because we can do that domestically and it reduces long term well medium to long term it will uh it will decrease uh our energy insecurity and and i think they've that opec has made that mistake i think alberta has made that mistake and i just your take on that yeah, so I um, I think about the the energy transition in of the form of a trilemma, which is the way that European energy security, um, affordability, and sustainability has been conceived for the last fifteen years. These are the three poles. It has to be more environmentally friendly. It has to we you know we have to have secure access to market, but it also has to be uh, affordable. And the war in in the Ukraine and Russia's invasion really brought security of supply back to the forefront, it had always been there, but certainly from 2015 with Paris and then the 2019 net zero point we were just talking about, 
you know, it had overshadowed and we'd taken supply access for granted. So that security of supply and climate and energy security having to be considered concurrently, that is definitely what has defined um, certainly the, the, the narrative in and around investment decisions and policy formulation in 2023. And I think it'll continue to loom really large as we go into 2024 and think about industrial strategies to support the energy transition you know, the domestic content, domestic security of supply and affordability are as important as lower emissions. Okay, so let's talk about the first trend, which is the remarkable rise of renewable energy, uh, primarily wind and solar. By 2050, they're going to account for more than 50% of the global power supply. And this, the point that you make in the release is that in the past decade, we were witnessing a transformation of the power sector. And I don't think this is appreciated in Canada because we've, you know, we're at like 82 or 84% uh, zero emission already because of hydro and nuclear in Ontario. And we, we have, we don't have a national grid. We have 10 provincial grids uh, and of course, three territorial grids. And so we've been really spoiled. We've had this, you know, uh, low emission, uh, affordable power, uh, remarkably stable and reliable, and there hasn't been the pressure on Canada and any of the provinces to really re-engineer its power grid the way you're seeing in, in the United States and in some of the countries in Europe and so on. So give us kind of the, the global take on this transformation of the power sector, what, what's driving it, policy, technologies, and you know that's the context, that's where Canada has to go. I guess. Yes, absolutely. And well, and many, many have to follow the the sterling example that Canada has set in, in some aspects of its policy formulation. So, you know, Markham, it's safe to say that um, uh, electricity is the vector of this energy transition. If we think about providing more energy for more people, you know, the global economy is going to grow at about 2% per annum. Birth rates will give us a, a couple billion more people um, in the years to come. And, you know, their uh, requirements need to be serviced in a way that's um, lower emitting and, you know, to the formulation around that trilemma, um, also in a, in a secure and affordable manner. So that electricity wins in the, the contest of the energy transition is a given and renewable power provision is uniquely um, suitable to meeting those those goals. I think this has been recognized, as you say, from a policy standpoint, there are those drivers and Canada has done a good job of adding to its system in a low carbon fashion. There's many governments that are playing catch up. Indeed, if you look around the world, most climate policy is renewable power policy. And that provides scope for incremental generation to flow into systems. But also what we're seeing is more of a, uh, an acknowledgement of the need to embed that capacity in a much more let's say optimal fashion. So it's no good installing windmills, such as we have in the North Sea uh, off the coast of Scotland and curtailing that capacity at a, at a time when we're paying massive premiums um, for a, a, a power system that's essentially seeing prices shaped by gas. So there's a huge amount of policy focus on driving the renewable economy forward because it meets our stated economic and environmental goals. But at the same time, we got to get a lot smarter about embedding that capacity. And I think there's examples that Canada can teach the rest of the world, but also Canada can do a much better job of optimizing its capacity to make sure that energy costs are kept down because frankly, an energy transition that isn't affordable, is going to fail. Indeed. And that's a lesson for, you know, that's a lesson for the provinces, for the feds, 
as well as for those that would look to Canada as a, a real leader in the field. Indeed, indeed. And uh, briefly, if you could address the the objection that I hear over and over again, you know, the the wind uh, doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine and and you can't rely on this and you have to have a backup, uh, you know, a thermal backup or a nuclear backup of some kind for every uh, megawatt of generating capacity you've got for renewals, renewables. And yet I see all over the world uh, utilities and regulators are integrating renewables in in and they're they're putting in place things like you know market trading so you can trade amongst regions uh demand response uh storage is 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 one of the big stories of the last year or two and we're seeing a huge increase in storage and is, is it fair to say that you know we can reliably integrate renewables at around 30 40 50 percent now we're not at 100 percent. nobody can do that really but at those yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there. And I think it's system by system, just how successful we can be. But you're right. Like you just listed out all the tools that we need. We need to think about, you know, not just generation and electrons in isolation, but the way in which we can firm them up. So a lot of our work, you know, day to day, I manage a team of uh, commercial due diligence focused consultants and we're valuing assets and we're helping on the buyer, the sell side. And very rarely will you get these assets being brought to market without some kind of storage component. Or indeed, if you're a developer, it's not great to be putting out capacity that lacks that firm quality. So, you know, solar plus battery is the norm when we're thinking about new system um, additions in many parts of the world where we're operating. So we've got that storage component. There's other ways we can firm up capacity and you're right, like network integration, the expansion of our grids, um, demand side management and empowering consumers to make different choices, but also getting away from the monolithic one grid and uh, much more decentralized, much more nimble nodal markets are a way for us to ensure that consumers are always paying exactly what they have to. So, you know, we do need to move with the times, Mark. And we've gone from adding renewables to thermal systems where gas was always there to firm things up or nuclear, as you rightly say, although nuclear is not the most responsive as a, a form of firming up capacity or peak generation, but it has its role to play in the stack. To now we're adding renewables to renewables focused systems. And, you know, Canada's hydro provides a really great bellwether, as it were, to, you know, to firm things up, but other systems lack that capacity. So it can be challenging, but ultimately what's great from a developer standpoint is that the firmer the capacity, the higher the utilization, the better the revenue, and the more the investors are gonna to wanna to turn to the low carbon economy as a source of longer term stable returns for their capital. And we, we gotta be smart, regulators need to enable the technological changes which we've seen over the course of the last decade to really tap into that potential. Earlier in the interview, I mentioned China. <clears throat> and yes. your release has a remarkable uh, graph here. And unfortunately, uh, uh, we're doing this audio only and not video uh, where we could put it up. But last year, a year ago in December of 22, China was manufacturing solar modules at 26 cents uh, a watt. That's now down to 15 cents. Yes. A, a reduction of 42% in one year. And for comparison's sake, India, the cost is 22 cents. Europe is 30 cents. And the U.S. is 40 cents. And I also understand that China is only using a fraction of its actual solar module manufacturing capacity. 
I, I saw the figure of, I think it was 30, 38%. So that suggests that, that not only uh, are they continuing to make technological improvements and so on to drive down price, but they have, they are at scale and they can, yes. do, and, and this go, this is going to, going to continue. So your take on this. Um, well, I think that if there was some suggestion of a green arms race that China's won it and uh, conclusively shown over the last 12 months that it can bring to bear uh, a degree of support for the industry, which the Inflation Reduction Act or Repower EU or other local industrial strategies are uh, completely overshadowed by. So over the course of the last 12 months, we've seen China scaling up production, upgrading the underlying technological uh, foundation, which will support its um, solar PV uh, industry, a lot of vertical integration around production, and also just some really impressive cost reductions on the raw material side, all contributing, as you rightly say, to this more than 40% decline. These solar uh, components, these panels, they're so, so, so cheap. And it promises, on the one hand, to feed, you know, the point we were making a little bit earlier on, if this transition is about electrons, more power to more people, this augurs well. Um, now, um, there is a question of how uh, structural these changes are and whether China can maintain these cost profiles. The evidence that we're seeing is that this is a structural shift. And um, it is just... Uh, just absolutely eye-watering relative to the cost profiles that we see associated with U.S. or European manufacturer. Now, the money that's going to go into support building those supply chains, again, thinking about energy security, um, it, there's a lot of local dividends. So that'll be green jobs in the States. That'll be, you know, new or reshored manufacturing capabilities in Europe and so forth. And that, that bodes well for the communities that we're both speaking from today. But ultimately, if there's a cost conflict, um, China won it. And uh, indeed, you know, we, we policymakers as well as investors need to be mindful of that. We're already seeing uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, switch from focusing on coal to focusing on renewables. I think in 2023, the 70% of the, the financing that China provided for the power sector outside of China um, was, was renewables. And if when I'm, I'll back up a little bit. OPEC makes the assumption that hydrocarbons will still be the energy source of choice in places like Latin America, Africa, some of the Asian countries. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, really? Because China wants those markets. Yeah. And China and China will aggressively pursue those markets because it has the financial capability, it has the low-cost technology, it has it's set up for this. It just seems like that is going to be the logical next step for China is to is to ramp up the utilization of all that spare capacity and then and then export it into markets like like Africa. I, I would agree. And certainly when you look at, um, as many of my consultants do, the market fundamentals where there's so much traditional biomass, there's so many um, African communities that are off grid that are excluded from the energy economy, like a lower cost technological solution for me is a social good. It lends itself to the cause of sustainable development. Now, 
I think hydrocarbons have unique properties. Uh, it was the subject of my doctoral thesis, so I won't start monologuing on this. But you know, the the renewable economy does have to measure up to the kinds of performances that hydrocarbons offer. And for you know some small localities, very isolated, a diesel jenny may be the best way to back up your solar system. But China is going to put a low cost solar system on the market and it's there for the taking. And you're right, what's, what's also interesting, another dimension of this, Markham, is um, the rare earth elements and kind of critical mined commodities, which is another focus of the paper, um, that China dominates those value chains. And over time, we're going to see some supply diversification, some of the signals around um, pricing, unprecedented pricing in lithium or cobalt circles or indeed in copper are going to drive new supply to market. But China holds a lot of the access and a lot of the processing capabilities. So it is very much in China's interest to further the low carbon economy because, hey, let's face it, over the last 15 years, basically, most OECD countries were asleep at the wheel and failed to appreciate the importance of these commodities to support the evolution and the next generation of economic activity. And China was not. And, uh, you know, that goes back to the way China played the financial crisis, the huge amount of money that went into renewable value chains, but also, as you rightly say, the foreign policy that it has been uh, pursuing over the last decade. I, I This might be a, a time for, for regular listeners of Energy Talks to go get a coffee or something, because I'm going to talk about the speeches by Secretary of U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo. And Steve, I you know I I bring this up all the time because one of the points that that Raimondo makes in her speeches about the uh, clean energy industrial policy is that the Americans never woke up to the problem of supply chain vulnerability until literally the start of the pandemic. They were, she says, we were asleep at the switch. It was the pandemic that woke us up and, and necessitated a change in the policy that led to the Infrastructure Act and the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and all of that. It's remarkable that the most powerful nation in on the planet was asleep at the switch. Yeah, I agree. And uh, students of geopolitics will, uh, you know, chime in with um, some of the complacency, um, which the, uh, you know, to one administration after another in the United States. But also, I think that you could say that it's the OECD or the, the you know, the G7 that we're all failing to appreciate the basis upon which the low carbon economy, which was beginning to take shape in the early 2000s, but certainly received a degree of stimulus after the financial crisis, um, uh, you know, what was actually going to support it. And we spend a lot of time still educating investors about like, do you have any idea what commodities go into some of these technologies and the preponderant kind of pressure points or bottlenecks that exist? So, you know, it's, um, it is a condition of where we are in the energy transition. And I think that it's going to be more as opposed to real displacing China. Like if you want graphite, it's coming out of China. And so your batteries require that and there's no alternative, frankly. But uh, other forms of supply diversification um, are likely to take place. And I think the rest of the world will begin to add capacity in a way which will provide good safe havens and kind of local supply chains. But yeah, it's, um, it's notable that, uh, that we missed one of the primary 
kind of uh, trends of the uh, the information age, the digital economy, which was all the minerals that were required to support it. And uh, yeah, complacency or hubris or what have you is a fair characterization. Asleep at the switch, you know, I'd, I'd agree with the secretary with, uh, with that formulation. Well, look, uh, I've been reading the International Energy Agency's state of the clean uh, energy manufacturing base uh, report. And one of the, this is it's gobsmacking. It, over the next 10 years, it's likely that the U.S. and Europe uh, and U the EU will put will invest between one and a half and two trillion dollars in clean energy uh, manufacturing. All that will do is keep them at the same percentage of global capacity as they have now, because China will be doing the same thing. They're going to spend all that money and invest all that capital, and they're not going to make a dent in the percentage of you know that they have of that. Is, that is astonishing. How much it's capital striking, is isn't going? It? It, it really is. Yeah. Well, indeed, and you know we've spent. I sit here again from the UK, and we spent so much in um, propping up our financial sector during the uh, the financial crisis of two thousand eight, and China in fairly robust health, just put a huge amount of stimulus into its uh, its manufacturing capabilities. And, you know, the sheer scale of the investment, again, like they're big numbers. And again, I think that some of the top line stuff around the IRA, it will be contingent on some of the electoral decisions that are going to take place, both in the United States and other parts of the world. You know, uh, 2024 is going to be a record year for democracy. And, uh, and on the one hand, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, something to, uh, to champion. And at the same time, it promises change. And um, it's, it's very, very difficult to um, see a situation where Europe can catch up um, or where, you know, indeed, as you rightly say, shares of certain markets are more evenly distributed. You're lucky if you can toe the line. If you cost twice as much, and these are costs that are going to be passed through to like the U.S. consumer, the average Canadian consumer. We have to question whether our communities are willing to support that, whereas China will basically sh and has shown like this is this is what these technologies can cost. And frankly, I think that, you know, we may even see more Chinese dominance than some of those uh, forecasts suggest, because it is, you know, Markham, they're betting that we can build the supply chains. And like you and I both know that it's, you can say that the money's there to onshore and to build an entire industry from scratch takes many years. Certainly, I don't think it's going to make a damn bit of difference by 2030. Probably by 2050, um, you begin to see, you know, that more of a material factor. But it's also, you know, how much do you want to change and how quickly do you want to change? The argument that we make in our paper, and indeed a lot of the narratives around the uh, climate action that I've, I heard when I was in Dubai the other week are, you know, frankly, let's use the best that we have right now. Those are Chinese components from a cost basis. And uh, I think that that's what the energy transition should be um, in large part animated by under any of the scenarios that are out there. Well, let's talk about critical minerals and, uh, and supply chains. Because you, you make the point that there's going to be change in supply chains, broadening of the, of the base and uh, of the, the chains and, and deepening of them. And one of the questions I have is the around the ability of clever engineers in batteries, in other industries, to, to engineer around those problems. 
you know, we've seen we've seen the issue of uh, uh, of uh, uh, nickel, for instance, uh, battery engineers using less or no of it, none of it. And we're also looking at, I was reading an article yesterday uh, from uh, one of your competitors, so I won't mention them on, on air. Uh, but Very good. The, um, uh, there, there's a, a, a renewables installation going in in the US and they're gonna use iron air batteries. So, hmm. you know, uh, very simple components and much cheaper, not as efficient as lithium ion, but lots of other benefits for stationary storage. So the amount of innovation that's taking place in the clean energy manufacturing space and its supply chains, what role might that have on the demand for some of these critical minerals that we're worried about? Well, I, um, on the one hand, I think that you're quite right that there's a lot of um, solutions to the problems of uh, um, uh, energy sustainability, security, and affordability. And, you know, recent prices in power markets um, in Europe driven by the invasion of uh, the Ukraine and uh, our gas-focused systems, supply chain disruptions, this has really brought the intention of innovators into the sector. We haven't even talked about AI and the way in which more... Um, let's say artificial intelligence enabled solutions to the supply demand or design functions, the big data problems that sit behind some of these technologies that could enable. So I think some of the price signals are loud, are coming through loud and clear. I would basically always fall on the side of the most cost-effective, the most efficient technologies. Uh, I do believe in the contributions and the scale opportunities that exist, but you have to pass the efficiency eye test as far as I'm concerned. And whether or not the, do we have a sufficient monetary incentive or signal around security of supply to, to capture those benefits? I, I'm not wholly sure like that, that you uh, are delivering a certain form of energy or certain performance uh, to a consumer. Like most consumers look at the price point and that will be a function of basically the overall efficiency conversion and some of the underlying characteristics of the, the, the energy production or transformation technology. So like I believe in those solutions, but I think there's a lot of demonstration and kind of air, arm waving going on to show just how many different things could tap into some of the incentivization that's been put out there because some of these technologies do pass muster from a you know an IRA adder tax incentive standpoint but whether or not they're actually going to supplant the technologies that have supported the transition this far I I would bet on the incumbent technology in that regard but again you know I tend to be maybe a bit conservative uh, and think that we have the technologies that we need to deliver on the promise of the transition. We can do more for more people at lower rates of environmental degradation. We just have to use them better. I'm going to use an example of my from my thesis, which was all about the transition from horses and steam to tractors and combines in Saskatchewan uh, oh, years ago. And the, the point there is that the inflection point for tractors was around 1918, 19, uh, 20, when Ford introduced the Fordson small tractor. So it was based on, on automobile technology. It was, it was inexpensive, easy to fix. And, and farmers just bought them, uh, bought them as fast as they could, they came off the assembly line, but they weren't all that great. 
<laughs> they might not have had air cleaners and some some of them had open gears which in you know is, is crazy in a farm a farming environment when you're out in the field where it's dusty on and on my point is that the tractor of night of the fordson of 1918 and 19 uh, 1920 was very different than the fordson of 1930 mm -hmm. and and much more competitive and much more reliable. And the cost per unit of things like plowing a field had fell during that decade, which accelerated the, the adoption rate. And I suspect that technologies that maybe are not competitive, like clean energy technologies, that are not competitive today, but are get but are, are maybe past their inflection point and, and now experiencing exponential growth. We're going. We're going to see the point, the time when they are far more competitive than the incumbents, and it won't take very long. No, indeed, I think that's fair, and I think you know I, I have to do a lot of market forecasting in my role, so I have to. And in some cases, we're exploring some of the scale opportunities that exist in advanced energy solutions. I spend some time with the World Economic Forum uh, in support of one of those communities, and from. Uh, sustainable aviation fuels to small modular nuclear reactors, um, new advanced clean hydrogen um, technologies or battery storage or different forms of storage. You know, there are a wealth of innovative entrepreneurial solutions that are coming to the market now, you know, there, and there's also a lot of there's a lot of capital available. I was uh, visiting some of the bulge banks in the city of London last week, and there's a lot of long money that's been sat on the sidelines while interest rates have not been fabulous. And some of the, uh, you know, the costs of capital have gone up for those renewable developers who have a disproportionate exposure to said, given the, um, where they are in the development of their technologies, the balance sheets are not fabulous, but the solutions are certainly there. And I think, you know, there's certain rules in the energy system. Your thesis highlights them. And um, we have to be mindful of the technologies that serve the market design, you know, the momentum, the technical momentum, to borrow a term from my thesis, that has been developed by the hydrocarbon energy system. It sets the rules. And if you want to understand, you know, it's, there's very few consumers that would vote for less. But that doesn't mean that we, we, we can't focus on efficiency and productivity in the way we design our energy systems. And I think that there's enough of an acknowledgement from policymakers, enough technological solutions, and with some good market reform, the potential for the way we think about supply and demand to price that adequately for you know, what we have today to do a better job, to be more optimally uh, embedded in our energy systems, but also for scope, those unique performances of some of the technologies that we could spend a whole other episode talking about, you know, to service the needs of communities or to, to measure up and surpass what fossil fuels have done. And that's one of the reasons why I work in energy, Markham. It's so bloody exciting. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, well, let's talk about the another trend, which is carbon capture, utilization and storage. This is a huge issue in Canada, and it's, a lot of it is driven by Alberta and the uh, oil and gas industry, particularly the oil sands industry. And Canada has is actually a leader in this technology. It's been doing this uh, uh, since 2008, I think. Uh, and there's all kinds of experiments in Saskatchewan, uh, the Quest uh, upgrader in uh, the that Shell built, uh, in uh, in Alberta, uh, on and on. There's already a carbon trunk line, for example. Yes. 
And the, the oil sands companies uh, are designing an, a, a CCUS system for, for their, uh, their projects that will uh, build a pipeline down to uh, Cold Lake on the northeast part of the province, and that's where they're going to sequester the, the carbon. But there's a lot of skepticism that, that, uh, it's, can, that it can scale and scale economically. And yes. I, ran, I ran into a, a, cons a company that, that engineers uh, carbon capture equipment. And he said that right now, uh, to be economic, you need a carbon price of about $200 a ton. So it's, that, that was his take on it. Yes. Uh, so th the question is, is carbon capture utilization and storage, in your opinion, a mature technology? That will that that we can scale, or is it something that we hope we can scale and we don't know yet? Um, uh, so I am a big proponent of the technology. You don't get to net zero without carbon capture, um, because of its applications uh, upstream, because of the um, the persistence of emissions in some industrial processes. Like CO two is a logical chemical kind of reaction, as it were. It won't go away. So you need carbon capture and that needs to be acknowledged. You need carbon capture to get to net zero. That's the first thing. The second is yes, Canada is a leader and has demonstrated the maturity of the technology um, in the power sector, in an upstream environment. And although as a power guy, I see rather fewer opportunities around um, carbon capture uh, as a way to decarbonize the power sector, I think there's probably better solutions. I think where you, where it's rational and a logical part of your mitigation portfolio, it can do much, much better jobs at much lower prices than some estimates suggest. Indeed, I would make an argument that a tax credit is probably a better way to incentivize carbon capture than just carbon pricing, because I think that the, the vagaries of carbon pricing can give uh, project developers uh, fits. So, so we need the technology. Um, it can be sufficiently uh, incentivized in physical terms. It is mature. Enhanced oil recovery as a demonstration of the of suitability of sequestration applications is, is much older than myself, right? And that's saying something. Um, and last but not least, I think there also has to be an acknowledgement that it doesn't have to work everywhere. There's kind of a configuration around the distance from your emission source, your transport distance to your sequestration site, but where it, it does work at an industrial scale, it can make a fundamental uh, difference to the emissions intensity of some products and indeed some, some communities. So we see like a five-fold growth in CCUS over the next five years. That may end up being quite conservative. I want to raise a point for the oil and gas industry. Uh, I was reading the Canadian Energy Regulators net zero scenario modeling yesterday. And what they argue is that climate policies and particularly the cost of CCUS uh, for the oil sands could raise the production costs of bitumen extraction to the point where once the... Um, the markets are disrupted, you know, like the IEA is calling for uh, peak oil demand and by 2030 or before, then, a, then a, plat a plateau and then the decline curve starts. So once we're into that, this, the, the, net, the modeling shows 
that the climate policy costs increase the oil sands production costs to the point where they they may be uneconomic. They may be non-competitive or much less mm -hmm. competitive, and we see then a decline, a decline. But the thing that they don't address that, that hangs over this is publicly funded stranded assets. So if you provide subsidies and you provide tax uh, credits to get this stuff built, and then it turns out that the the oil oil sands companies that receive that can't compete in the 2030s, you've spent tens of billions of dollars basically building infrastructure for an industry that is going to go bankrupt. Yes, and I think, you know, to the the first exhibit in our report, the 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 manner with which renewable power will be able to claim more market share that uh, petroleum products and you know the the broader oil industry that supports it currently take is something that policymakers should be mindful of. Now, to my point about regulatory reform made in an earlier context, I think there is a way. I you know I work with people in the Canadian government. I've got members of the family that are serving with distinction uh, okay. th today. And, um, you know, I believe in the capability of regulators at the federal and provincial level in Alberta to reach a framework to allow the potential of the technology to serve the public good and stated policy objectives um, at both levels of government to, to make a difference. And you're right, like it, it needs to be a little bit more clever than it is right now, but it needs to be seen. I'm, I've been really impressed with the manner uh, of um, how the carbon price signals at fairly muted levels in Alberta has led to some very dramatic improvements in the performance in energy and emissions intensity of the production coming out of Fort McMurray, right? So it's like it's already been demonstrated that the sector can do it. We need to find a carbon price plus tax credit and public underwriting provision to help support the technology. That's, that's key because you're quite right. A lot of money could be spent for an industry that might be out of the money. We need to demonstrate the longer term competitiveness of Canadian production. And that's to my point, Markham, that we don't really have a, a sufficient economic vocabulary for kind of advantaged barrels, such as those that come out of Fort McMurray relative to some of the supply that's processed in the Gulf of Mexico and ends up serving some of the larger markets in the, in the, in the world. So I think, but I think we can do it. It's a roundabout way of saying, it. I think we can crack that nut. There's a longer conversation to be had here about the effect of the industrial uh, emitter carbon tax in Alberta on on the decline uh, of emissions intensity in the oil sands, which, by the way, yes. since 2009 is only 21 percent. So this is not like it fell off a cliff. No, no, no. But I would say so. I'm maybe more of a glass half full kind of guy. I'd say quite impressive that that emissions intensity has declined 20 odd percent despite some of the growth in output right so it's another way to think about it okay fair enough like i said that's grist for another conversation yes the, quite the, the one i want to focus in on is you were saying you know you're confident in the canadian and provincial regulators to to so that this the, the build out of ccus works in the public interest and i want to provide an example of where that's not happening so if you look Please. at the Pathways Alliance is, is basically the oil sands company's trade association. And they've been putting together the oil sands uh, CCUS project. So you've got 22 projects up in, in Northern Alberta. They will, they will have capture equipment. They'll have feeder pipelines into the main pipeline to down to, to Cold Lake. And all they're going to do is bury it. 
it, it, because, and the reason I bring this up is the uh, Alberta is experimenting. It has a, already has a, a research center on turning captured carbon into materials, advanced materials. Yes. And, and so if you, if you were going to do something in the public interest, you would say, okay, on the one hand, We've got companies and research that shows that we can take that captured carbon and turn it into a product, and we could build on we could build an advanced materials industry in in Alberta. You can't do that if you sequester it 300 kilometers away from where that industry would likely be built, which is in the north around Edmonton in the in 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 the industrial heartland. Yeah, and so it it's actually being designed not in the public interest; it's in the oil company's interest. Yeah, and a, and a little short-sighted, one would make the argument. Like, I would vote, uh, look at carbon capture. I think the use case that you highlight is a very important piece. Like, sequestration is generally conceived of in a subsurface uh, capacity, but that, you know, embedding CO2 in aggregates and advanced um, uh, materials manufacturer, dare we say even sin fuels, you know, there's like, there's a range of different applications that apply there. The other thing that I think is Canada needs a better export strategy in this regard, and that is the, you know, the technical acumen of carbon as a service, which is something that Canadian producers could offer the rest of the world. Um, there is, there is a, a great broad landscape for Canadian companies to be playing on away from home. And that is something that the government should look at incentivizing as part of its broader industrial and export strategy, because the learning by doing and the proficiency with the uh, captured technologies that could be developed in an Alberta context could be a great export success story and something that would perhaps rise above some of those fundamentals about the future of the petroleum industry, because these would be energy companies offering uh, carbon as a service in ways that would really be very much in keeping with this transition and uh, some of the future needs of the global economy. Well, let's deal with the last trend, which is the, the heat pump sector. And yes. this this one warms the cockles of my cold, cold heart because <laughs> we installed a, a heat pump 18 months ago and I'm astonished at how much I love it. Absolutely love it. it. The house is more comfortable. We didn't have air conditioning before. Now we have air conditioning in the summer. The, the cost, I can't believe the low cost uh, of the system. So uh, BC Hydro bills us uh, once every two months. And generally, uh, my two-month bill is about $120. In the winter, when it costs more to make heat with a heat pump than it does to, to, to cool, uh, my bill, the biggest bill will be about $180. $90 a month to, to, to and that's not just the heating and cooling. Remember that we, we, we have home offices and, and all of our yes. other appliances that use electricity. I can't fathom how, how efficient that is. Yeah, no, I think it's... Um... It's one of those game changers. Um, we've seen a lot of European jurisdictions, which is part of the focus of our um, report, putting more emphasis upon this as a way to essentially reduce the load in their systems and the overall pressure on energy throughput. Um, there are some notable success stories. Um, minister from um, uh, from Finland was good enough to highlight how, you know, in a nation of just over 5 million, there's more than a million heat pumps installed. And it's a feature of how Climate, not unlike Canada's, is very much powered by uh, this technology that, with the right kind of incentivization, is well worth the upfront capex 
pays off extremely quickly, raises the value of any built environment, home or commercial, and is something that they're, it's pretty simplistic. Like you can get more sophisticated systems and so forth, but ultimately it's a technology that anybody listening should be looking at for their home or place of business and any policymaker that's wondering how can I displace emissions and help drive a more efficient energy system support for the economy that energy must provide, heat pumps are the answer. I, I couldn't agree more as my anecdote about our house uh, illustrates. Now, let's wrap this up, uh, Steve. The My takeaway from this is that, uh, and, and I'll back up a little bit. When I do presentations on the energy transition, I have a big S curve up on the, on the screen. And that S curve has a long, long, flat bottom of, of the curve. And I point out that, you know, we had solar, uh, the first, Solar panels were like the night, late 1970s and wind turbines in the 1980s and, and lithium ion battery in the 19, uh, early 1990s. I mean, these are technologies that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, maybe even you know, close to 50 years. The, the energy transition didn't start in 2020. And, no. and that's part of, it's that long development period where they, were, where they weren't very competitive and then they worked their way up the, uh, the S-curve and they're now when uh, at the inflection point, which means basically they're competitive with the, the new technologies, but they're not very far up the uh, around the inflection point and on the exponential growth curve, that hockey stick part of it. They're just at the beginning of it. And yes. and the uh, this is what I call the disruptive decade. The, it, the, it, the disruptive decade in the last energy transition was the 1920s. That's when it got crazy and you started seeing horses displaced and, and so on. And now we're seeing this decade is going to be enormously disruptive because the new technology is going to compete and we're going to see some industries go bust and, and on and on. And then uh, over the, you know, from the 2030s on, it'll be more apparent, you know, where where the, the clean energy tech is is has really triumphed and where we're going with this stuff. So that's my take on it. Is that a fair take? I think it is. I think that I uh, I agree with the uh, characterization of the maturity of the technologies. Now, you know, we're and the and the horizons are continuing to expand. So wind is now you know floating in at huge scale. Some of the biggest turbines ever conceived now likely to come to market. You know, the biggest project offshore in the world is just approved by Orsted. You know, last night. So we are at a point where. Big bets and big commitments are being made, but the technology is certainly there to support it. It promises disruption, but um, I think what we have seen is an acknowledgement in the need to reform the systems and optimize the capacity that we've added to our power systems yeah. and to our economies. Um, so to get a better deal for investors, because you know this year has been tough, but there is so much potential for further installations, for further emissions reductions, more local jobs, and cheaper energy, much, much cheaper energy. We're moving from this OPEX-focused world to like a CAPEX-focused world. And if you look at some of the CAPEX costs for these technologies, even firming them up to a certain extent with some of the options that are out there, it's a no-brainer. It's going to offer the global community an unprecedented diet of energy to drive the standards of living forward. And, you know, 
I, I was, as I mentioned, at Dubai, and I was so enthused by the real inclusive approach of the COP. You had everybody in the tent that needed to be the policymakers, the financiers, and the corporates. And, you know, I go into 2024 20, thinking that we are begin, we there has been an acknowledgement of the need to do more, and we have the potential that's latent for a much better energy system, much more adequate, much more equitable. And I think that, it, you know, there is going to be some disruption. There invariably will be winners and losers. But the overall outlook for this transition is one of acceleration, better mitigation dividends, better returns. And uh, it's going to keep me and my colleagues really busy. <laughs> and it's going to present a lot of great stories for you to tell. But again, it's, uh, it's one of the great things about our business. One final question to wrap up the interview. I make the point that the uh, the economy of the 21st century, the foundation of it will be electricity, clean electricity. And those countries or regions that grasp that and begin to electrify, begin to modernize and build out their power grid and, and integrate renewables and, and energy efficiency and, and all of the kind of stuff that's coming along, re-engineer business models. I mean, we're seeing in the U.S. the flattening of the utility business model, more prosumers coming into the market, energy as a service. I mean, it's very, very dynamic. We're, yes. not, we're not seeing that in Canada because we have too many crown corporations running. But here's my, my point is, is electricity the foundation of the 21st century economy? 100%. 100%. Like data and the information attention economy is a, is a good way to characterize this phase of capitalism. Try running it without power, you know, try running it without electricity and it'll, you know, it'll give you a real stark uh, reminder of the source of value and productivity that exists in the global economy today. But we've realized that through the age of globalization, through global supply chains with China at its heart, I would make the argument that um, more, res more resilience broader based supply chains obviously have advantages but it's and it's not an either or play we need china we need to embrace the potential for further cost declines to tap into some of that latent capacity that you alluded to to make sure that every single consumer gets the best possible deal they can and you know the unique features of this age of capitalism are visited on the broadest possible a uh, number of citizens, um, you know, and those that all have a stake in the global commons. And again, I think that that's part of the ethics of this system. And one of the things, again, I take away from the COP is that, you know, power to the people should be the rallying cry for this energy transition in more ways than one. And, uh, you know, I can still hear some of that chorus ringing in my ears a couple weeks after COP. And I certainly hope that it continues to be the refrain through 2024 and beyond. Well, as a child of the 70s, power to the people. I'm I'm, I'm nodding in agreement over here. I think Very good. that's a good idea. Well, look, uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family, uh, Steve. And we'll- Mark, happy any, holidays to you too. Thank you. And with any luck, we will have a chat again in uh, 2024. I certainly hope so. All the best to you and uh, your listeners. Uh, Merry Christmas to one and all.